In the days of which uh, we're a part, what does the Lord expect of us? The Old Testament asks the question, um, when we see these things going on around us, how then shall we live? New Testament puts it this way, what type of life ought we to live in this present evil world? The psalmist puts it this way, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we look around us and we see that in many ways this is what's taking place in our society, in our culture, from the leadership on down. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we have the offer of the presence of God and the, the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And he provides for us. He provides for us every day. So I want to pick up where we started off this morning in Micah chapter 4. And it's talking about um, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and it will be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, and I believe it's talking here about the kingdom of God. He's talking here about Jerusalem in the Old Testament. But in the kingdom of God that's here and present with us because of the presence of Christ and because he rules in our hearts and lives, many peoples and nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. He shall judge between many peoples, shall decide for strong nations far away, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so he's talking about a time when people began to put their faith and hope in the Word of God. And they come to the presence of the Lord that he may teach us his ways in order that we may walk in his paths. And it's the walking in his paths that brings the hope and the peace and the security that comes from his presence and grace. And as he begins to work within our hearts and lives, then there's a transformation that takes place. We don't plan for war anymore. We don't build weapons and we take the things that used to be for the destruction of those around us and we transform it into things that build up rather than tear down. Now that's true whether we're talking about our words that we speak about one another or to one another or our attitudes or relationships. That we take the things that are so... Um, call them the prickly things in our life, you know, don't touch me. Um, I want my will. Don't step on my toes. I can step on yours, but that's okay because it doesn't hurt me. Those kinds of things. And he says they transform those things into, into weapons of productivity. And the goal, it's an ideal, but it's an ideal that is reachable. Every man <coughs> shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one will make them afraid. And we can do that. 
Now, he puts it in the terms of an agricultural society, um, sitting under your vine and under your fig tree. And if you read back, um, they actually did this for a while under King Solomon. There was a time of peace, and they had that kind of security because God had blessed them and because they were doing things right in fulfillment and walking in the eyes of the Lord the way that he had called them to. And the kingdom of God had been established because of God's faithfulness and mercy. And there was, a, in the early days, an incredible time of peace and security because God gave them rest from all their enemies. And so it was a time of abundance, a time of growth and prosperity, a time of peace, and people had that. They, um, they were able to get on with their lives, living quietly with no one making them afraid. Um, and the hope was that that's what should be taking place in our lives as part of the kingdom of God. Now, we live in, in times of outward turmoil, but that outward turmoil, as our hearts and lives are built around the promises of Christ's presence with us, does not have to touch us or affect us in ways that disturb or destroy our peace. And so he's talking basically about living a quiet, peaceful life in ways that are pleasing to glorify and glorifying God. Um, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, puts it this way. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, the word is actually repentance, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. So we're living in times in which people are fearful, uh, things going on in North Korea um, and other places in the world. Um, there's a lot of violence, a lot of um, accusations and things being made and among our political leaders all those kinds of things are going on and yet in the midst of that there is a peace there's a stability there's a, a security that comes through walking with the Lord uh, the apostle Paul talks to this talks about this he's writing to his young protege uh, Timothy calls him his son in the gospel and Paul is in prison. Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. And Paul writes to him in chapter 2. And notice what he says because I think his instructions to Timothy are very much relevant today. Now they were living under the Roman Empire. Christianity was still an outlawed religion. The active persecution from the Roman Empire hadn't actually kicked in yet. But they were being persecuted by Jews and by others that were around them. And so in the midst of that, um, Paul himself being in prison, he writes to Timothy and he says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Did you notice that? There's no panic. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's no um, distrust. Supplications, first of all. Prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So when you watch the news and you hear all the stuff going on with leaders in our country and other countries, um, the threats and the chaos and all of those things going on, what is your response? He says we should be praying for our leaders and everyone in authority. Actually, the Old Testament says that there's a curse on people who curse their leaders. So that makes us stop and think a little bit, you know, particularly as Christian people. Paul's praying for people like Nero, Roman emperor, under which he's going to die. Paul's praying for that man. He's not saying we ought to rise up and overthrow the government. He's not saying we ought to have a revolution. He's saying we need to be praying for our leaders. And if we don't like what they're doing, then prayers, supplications, intercessions with thanksgiving. So we need to be doing that. If we have a problem with leadership in our country or other countries or what's going on taking place, then that needs to be an item of prayer, not out of fear, but out of hope and strength. And as he's praying, he's not praying for destruction and all of those kinds of things. He's praying for peace. Peace doesn't begin with a piece of paper being signed by leaders. Peace begins in the heart of those leaders. And if their heart is for peace, that affects how they work and how they operate and what they say. And Paul's writing here and he's saying, we're praying that uh, we can live quiet life, a godly life, dignified in every way. It pleases God to do that because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's why Jesus came and died as a ransom for all. And so the people who seem to be our greatest antagonists or our greatest enemies, whether it's somebody in our family or the person next door or somebody we work with that we're having trouble with, whether it's a government official somewhere who's not being helpful, um, Christ died for them. And we need to remember the value that that person has in the eyes of God and the value that you and I both have in the eyes of God as well. So to live a quiet, peaceful life is what Paul is talking about. No one making us afraid. He says it again when he writes, or he had said it earlier, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And basically, it's the first half of this chapter, the first 12 verses. And he's talking about a life that is pleasing to God. And so he says to this church at Thessalonica... Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So he's encouraging them because he's saying many of you are already living this kind of lifestyle. And that's true in our church. And it's true among the kingdom of God. If we're walking with the Lord and we're really walking with him, 
then that means that we're going to be at peace with God, we'll have peace within our own hearts, and we will be at peace with people around us. Because if we're not at peace with the people around us, we can't be at peace with God. And so he's encouraging them, just as many of you are doing, do so even more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, even though we live in an impure society and culture. So it's the kind of thing, whether you allow these things to affect you and be corrupted by them, or you become the role model and the example and begin to influence those around you. And we have some really good examples in Scripture, don't we? We have people like Joseph down in Egypt in the Old Testament um, with a pagan society and culture, and somehow God protected that man and kept him from becoming bitter when he was condemned of crimes he did not commit, wrongfully imprisoned. Um, His own family had tried to kill him, and he had done nothing wrong. And God protected and shielded him And kept him from becoming a bitter, wretched man. And when he had the opportunity to take vengeance, he understood what God had done for him. And he said, am I in the place of God? Uh, You intended it for harm. God used it for good. And he blessed and provided for those people who had tried to kill him. And caused years and years of suffering and pain. Or you think of a man like Samuel. Um, Samuel raised in a priestly family, but these men were immoral, committed adultery, fornication with the women who came to worship God, abuse of God, abuse of the authority they had, abuse of the sanctuary, abuse of everything that they were supposed to stand for. And they were older, mature men, and this Samuel was a young boy when he first came. And in that kind of society and culture, with that going on all around him, God protected that man, that young boy, and brought him through that. And he became um, one of the key people in the entire Old Testament and history of religion. He's an incredible man because God was watching over him and walking with him. And so Paul says that's the way we ought to live. That's the way we ought to be. And if we're living it and putting it into practice, Peter writes, and he says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you because if you are living that kind of lifestyle, people will see it and they will know it. They may not understand it. And because they don't understand it, sometimes they will come and ask you, how can you be at peace with what's going on around you? Uh, How come you're not nervous? How come you're not anxious? How come you're not worrying about all of these things? How can you walk in peace in times like these? And he says, when they ask, then you can share with them about the Lord. And it becomes a tremendous tool of evangelism. It's just your daily life, walking with him in the workplace, at home, uh, in the marketplace, wherever you are.
And people will do that. So Paul continues writing to the Thessalonians. And he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So again, he's commending them that we live and walk as people who know and experience the love of God. And when we have the love of God in our heart, then we can share that with others. If the love of God is not in our heart, we have nothing to share. You cannot give what you do not have. And so Paul is commending them because they are doing that very thing. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire, this is your goal, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So live quietly, mind your own business, work with your hands so that you can walk in a way that is a testimony to the people around you. Now, when we talk about living a quiet lifestyle, um, we might think, well, how boring. You know, they make movies about stuff when things are bad, everything's wrong, all the threats are there, everything. You know, these are exciting things. It's got our interest and it's entertaining to see how people act and react and all that. But when things are going good, when there's peace in your heart and there's peace around you and you're living a quiet, productive life, uh, not too many people are writing about that or making movies about it, you know. Uh, there's not that kind of a thing. But that is where what we're called to do and it becomes an incredibly powerful thing. And it's the kind of thing that when that is taking place, you find fulfillment in the job that God has given you to do. Um, so what kind of job do you do? Is it a fulfilling job? Do you enjoy going to work? Is it the kind of thing that you look forward to? Uh, that's what it should be as we're walking with the Lord, whatever it is that he's called us to. And as we do that, um, you've got a purpose and a meaning in life, and there is peace. And you can go home, and there's a peace in your home and in your family. That's a very valuable thing. And people are running here and there. They're trying different things. They're becoming slaves to things that they think are going to provide that. And all it does is lead them deeper and deeper into bondage. And when they see the freedom of a person who's walking with the Lord, that's a very attractive thing and so that's what they've called us to do a simple lifestyle where you know what you're called to do and you do it well and you do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord and so uh, as the scripture talks about uh, the first people as you know in the Old Testament that were said to be filled with the spirit were the artisans the craftsmen who created the tabernacle the ark of the covenant and all men who worked with their hands uh, in wood and stone, in precious jewels, in gold and metal, um, in cloth and dyeing materials and sewing and skins of animals and all and all the rest of these things. These were the ones, that, the first ones that the Bible said were filled with the Spirit of God because um, work is not a curse. And when you read the opening chapters of Genesis, work 
became a drudgery with the entrance of sin. But they were working before that happened. And it was a, a, a job that fulfilled them and that they enjoyed and it gave them a purpose and something to do. So that's what he's called us to do, to live quiet lives, um, walking in obedience and fellowship with the Lord. That's the context in Galatians 5.22 when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the thing about the fruit of the Spirit is it's just that. It's not a requirement. It's not a commandment. It's not something that we achieve and strive for. The fruit of the Spirit is not a requirement. It's a consequence. It's a fruit. So that means that if the Holy Spirit is in our life, then the result, the consequence of Him being in our life is the fruit of the Spirit. So we normally read this from Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So what he's saying is if the Holy Spirit is in our life, and if Jesus is Lord of our life, these things are going to be in our life. They will be operative, active in our hearts and in our life. It's the fruit of his presence in us. Now, if these things are not there, there's nothing you can do to earn them or get them or achieve them. It's not our efforts that produces these things. It's the result of the presence of the Lord. When he is there, these things are evident and active in our life. If they are not there, then there's a question about his presence in our lives. So the Old Testament has a word for it. It's the word shalom. And shalom is a, it's a very broad, powerful word. It's the harmony of a caring community informed every point by its awareness of God, says John Taylor. Harmony of a caring community. So these things cannot be lived out in isolation. This is what the body of Christ is for. This is what community is for. It's in the body of Christ that the fruit of the Spirit are seen and experienced as we interact with each other. And if one of us is having a difficulty or a problem, then that fruit uh, from someone else's life can be shared with those of us who are struggling in different areas. And so there's a lot of different fruit. There's at least nine of them listed here. And um, it's not like these things are all the time there present in every way. It, it should be, but they aren't because of, we're just the kind of people we are, you know. But it's the kind of thing that is there... Um, it forms a, a solid foundation and a strength from which we can address the difficulties and the circumstances, the temptations, the failures that we come in contact with on a daily basis. So this shalom grows out of closeness to God and it influences um, all of our relationships and our attitudes. One of the things that it talks about, um, we can look at the Beatitudes on these things. 
the Beatitudes are the blessings of a person who's walking with the Lord. There's eight of them. And as you read through those things, it's counterintuitive and countercultural um, to where we live. Because the world says you're not going to find peace and blessedness and happiness in those areas. It has to be these things over here that are going to kill you. But if we trust the Lord and allow him to work within us, then he begins to, to make us and shape us into those kinds of people. And when that happens, then the blessing of God is upon us. And we know the peace. And we know the joy. And we know the love and the faithfulness and the goodness, self-control and all these other things that are there. Uh, you notice that one of the blessings there is for peacemakers. And it's not the ones who relax in peace and never do any harm. That's not what they're talking about. A peacemaker is an active thing. It's those people who create peace. It begins with our relationships with God and the surrender of our fear and ego. And from there, it flows into a, a new attitude to the people around us. Now, there's a simple thing that we can all check out anytime we want, and it's this. Those who are critical of others, believing the worst, those people are out of harmony. What does this imply about the peace in their hearts and their minds? Sometimes we live like a a walking civil war in constant conflict within ourselves. And God says to us, I will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on me because he trusts in me. And so God offers us that peace so that we might be able to live a quiet, productive life, praying for our leaders in the situations that we find ourselves in praying for the things that would disturb and steal our peace around us within our own hearts, within our own homes, within our own community, and within our own church. And so these are things that God has called us to. So we don't have to wonder, what does, what does God expect of me? He expects us to live quiet, peaceful, productive lives, walking with Him and being an example and to be salt and light to the people that are around us that are walking in darkness and are searching desperately for some kind of meaning. So as we come to communion um, this morning, there's been a lot written. I can remember when it first came out, so it hadn't been, well, it's been a long time, when I was very young. They were uh, talking about a new awareness thing and counseling and, and different things. Um, call it body language. You all familiar with that? There's been a lot made about it. And what they're saying is that a lot of times it's not what a person says that's, that's really what's going on in their heart or how they feel. And oftentimes what they're saying with their mouth, they betray it themselves through their body language. You know, so... so uh, I'm not worried about, I, I really, I'm not, I'm, I'm not worried, uh, you know, I, I'm really not, you know, and um, I'm at perfect peace, 
I, I am. I'm at peace. Wow. You know, body language. And it's a, they've made a science and a study of it, and it's an incredible thing. If you really know what that does, and you sit down and talk with people, it's a real eye-opener. Um, one of the gifts of the Spirit is discernment. And it works through things like that. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he, and he says, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you've got to be born again. That's the real question that you're wanting to ask. <laughs> Went right straight to what was really going on in his heart. And Jesus does that with you and I. So, as we come to communion... Uh, Jesus is offering us his body and blood that we might participate in his life. Now Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he talks to the Christian people and he says, you are the body of Christ. When people see your body language, what message are we given to the people around us? And so it's a question that I want us to think about. God has called us to live quiet, peaceful, productive lives. Lives that are fulfilled and purposeful and meaningful. Life that has value and counts for something. And that's what he's called us to do. It's not something way beyond our reach. He's talking about simple, everyday, ordinary lifestyle of walking in the presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he died, so that can be a reality in our hearts and life. And uh, then life becomes a joyful thing. It becomes a peaceful thing. It becomes something that's enjoyable. And you can walk out and you can see the things that God has created, and it just tells you of his love and his grace and his presence with us. And um, that becomes, as the songs were saying, an anchor for our soul. And when things blow up around us, Um, and things begin to fall apart, we have a strength, we have a presence, and we have a source that we can turn to to make us what we need to be in each one of those areas. So it's the kind of thing that um, when we're listening to each other, whether it's in our home or in our families or out in the workplace, this is from Ray Simpson. He says, listen to the fragile feelings, not to the clashing fury. Listen to the quiet sounds, not to the loud clamor. Listen to the steady heartbeat, not to the noisy confusion. Listen to the hidden voices, not to the obvious chatter. Listen to the deep harmonies, not to the surface discord. And so he's talking to us about body language and he's talking to us about hearing and recognizing the hand of God at work in us, in other people, even in situations and circumstances that threaten to destroy us. God is working in those things to change us, to mold us, to cleanse us and purify us (coughs) and working for our good uh, if we walk with him. So that's possible because Jesus on the night that he was betrayed... He took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, it's given for you. 
After supper, he took the cup. And after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as we think about taking the life of Christ within ourselves, that's where the transformation takes place. That's where the source, the strength, uh, the change takes place as we become more and more like him. And as we feed on him in our hearts and in our spirits, the Lord is at work changing us uh, more and more into the image of Christ so that we can be the body of Christ. And um, the body of Christ, that's where the wounds are. And the wounds are the authenticity of who he is. Do you remember um, in the upper room on the night that Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared in there and it scared them all to death until he showed them his hands and his side. It was the proof of who he was. And that's the proof of who we are in Christ as well. Broken people raised up, restored through the blood of Christ that he invites us to come. So will those who are serving communion please come forward?